Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Athletic. Hi there, thanks for joining us. You're listening to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast with me, Ali Maxwell. Joining me, as always, Tom Warville and Michael Cox. Now, Tom, every time I go onto YouTube at the moment, uh, you appear to be stuck inside a scattergram, which is both peculiar and alarming uh, for your friend and colleague. But you look safe and well, and dare I say it, happy. How are you doing? Yeah, both both of those things. Uh, all good. I was at the Emirates last night for Arsenal's 2-0 victory over Leeds United. Um, I thought Leeds looked quite poor, uh, which is a reflection of how they've been playing in the league. Um, but yeah, I am out of the scattergram, as everyone likes to remind me when they see me in person. And uh, yeah, mm. happy and healthy. Busy weekend for you, Michael Cox. Three articles written and released in the space of 36 hours at three games specifically. Everton 2, Watford 5, Manchester United 0, Liverpool 5 and Barcelona 1, Real Madrid 2. This is a bit of a dream weekend, I think, for a a football tactics writer, surely. Exciting stuff all round. Yeah, there was a lot of football going on. The Classico clashed with... um... Man United, Liverpool, which was a bit of a pain, wasn't it? Mm. But yeah, it was my first time up at Goodison Park. I've waited a long time to go there. Very difficult to get a seat in that press box because it's very, very small. But fantastic stadium and an absolutely chaotic last 15 minutes. I've never seen a collapse like it. Everton 2 on up, I think 15 minutes to go and end up conceding four goals in that time. Uh, Josh King getting a hat-trick against the side he didn't score any goals for last season. I think just compounded their misery. So um, first time at a historic ground like that, you kind of want a home win. But I gather from speaking to our uh, Everton reporter, Paddy, that the disgruntlement and anger was a lot more typical of the Goodison, uh, Goodison experience. So uh, maybe maybe I lucked out with that game. And among the best pre-match music that exists in the Premier League or in English football, would you say, at Everton? I've always enjoyed hearing it on the, on the, on the highlights, on the telly. With, with Zed cars at the start, mm. you mean? Yeah, I mean, the whole the whole kind of half hour before the match and the music they played was very, it felt very quaint and very old-fashioned. It really goes with the setting. Um, and yeah, you imagine that when they do move to that, uh, that new ground by the docks, maybe it will just be generic Black Eyed Peas or whatever they play. Black Eyed, to be honest, Black Eyed Peas a bit 10 years ago now, isn't it? No one plays Black Eyed Peas anymore, but you, you catch my drift. Calvin Harris somehow involved, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, now uh, let's let's just introduce today's uh, episode. It's uh, it was an idea that I had uh, early this week, and I guess the best way of of kicking us off is to say that today's podcast is not about Mo Salah or Cristiano Ronaldo or Lionel Messi, but we need to start with those three because first and foremost with Salah. Michael, October 2021, this month, seems to be the month where the footballing world sort of definitively decided that Mo Salah of 15 goals and five assists in 12 games this season is the best player in the world. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's the first time 
since Kaka, isn't it really? Kaka was the best player in the world in 2007, 2008. No one really disputed that. And then Ronaldo obviously became the man and Messi the next year. And since then, it's been, what, 13 years? No, 12 years, let's say, of pure Messi and Ronaldo debate. There's never really been a case that anyone else is the best player in the world, I don't think. Mm. Even when Luka Modric won the Ballon d'Or, he was winning the Ballon d'Or because he's had a very good season, won the European Cup, got to the World Cup final. But these two are the two you would have mm. wanted to have in your team. And you're right, now it does seem like if, if you offered any player in the world to start your season with, people are going for Salah. And that does feel very novel, doesn't it? Mm. Lots of pieces being written about Mo Salah being the best player in the world. That's not what we're focusing on, but rather as you've said, sort of feeling that this is quite significant because at, uh, until this point, that conversation uh, would, would never have really held any weight over the last, what, 12, 13, 14 years because of the, the excellence uh, of Messi and Ronaldo. So I thought, why don't we do a podcast about those who have played their careers at the very highest level in this time period, but lived in the shadows of Messi and Ronaldo. So we're going to pick out a few players, four in total, and then a couple of highly commended who ordinarily would have been in most best player in the world conversations at any other point in history, but who have suffered in terms of world reputation or legacy, dare I say it, simply down to poor timing rather than poor performance, just because of the uh, presence of Messi and Ronaldo rather than any fault of their own. So we're going to analyse a couple of careers and we're going to try and not mention Messi and Ronaldo where possible, because those two have basically put a ceiling on how other players of their era could be discussed and ranked. Michael and Tom will be giving an appraisal of their qualities, their numbers, achievements, etc. Yeah, I just think there's a group of players who haven't got and won't get as much credit for their brilliance as they would have had they existed at an equivalent level in any other era. So, Michael, that's both unfair and unprecedented because before this era, you mentioned Kaka winning the Ballon d'Or in 2007, being the you know, consensus best player in the world at that point. But in the decades previously, this was this was feeding football media coverage because it was a genuinely interesting and varied debate year on year. Yeah, it was. I mean, even within seasons, you could have two or three different players at various times that you might consider the best player in the world. I don't think we had such a divide between the big clubs and the small clubs um, in that, in that uh, era. And therefore, I don't think players were kind of scoring goals and getting assists quite so consistently. And I think as well, the level of teams fluctuated more. So, yeah, sometimes there was, you know, I mean, we're not going to talk too much about the Ballon d'Or because this isn't quite what that's about. But, I mean, you look in the early 2000s, there was, I think, seven or eight different winners in eight different years. And and that was, I, I suppose that was slightly unusual compared to the 70s and 80s and 90s. You tended to have a player who would retain it for a couple of years. But yeah, there was a period where there maybe wasn't um, a real outstanding all-time great. But uh, yeah, whether it was Nedved or Shevchenko or Thierry Henry or Ronaldinho, um, yeah, the identity of the best player in the mm. world fluctuated a lot. Uh, just on the Ballon d'Or, we should mention that, of course, Luka Modric did win it in 2018. He's the only player not named Ronaldo or Messi to win it since Kaká in 2007. Just uh, remind me about Modric, because we're not actually going to talk about him in depth today, but he did win the big gong in, in 2018. Was that a case, looking back, of uh, sort of voter fatigue, uh, or was it a fair award for the Croat? Yeah, I think it was voter fatigue. I think you're right on that. I, I think it... Um... The thing is, the Ballon d'Or, it's almost, it's almost become who's had the best year rather than who's been the best player. I mean, Jorginho has been in the conversation for this year. He's, he's a very, very good player. But 
I mean, I, I don't think Jorginho is in the best 10, maybe best 20 players in the world. He's a very good player. But of course, because he won the European Cup and he won the Euros, people are kind of going to him as the, you know, the default in that respect. And Modric nearly had that because he got to the World Cup final, of course. So, um, yeah, he had a very good year. Um, and it was quite nice in a way to see someone different win it. But uh, in, in 2018, if you asked, you know, if you said I could have any player in the world to base my team around, I still would have gone for Messi, even though he didn't finish in the top three. Uh, one of the reasons we, we don't want to use the Ballon d'Or as our sort of starting point here, Tom, is that it's not the most analytic of award, is it? As Michael said, in, in terms of trying to value a player's performance uh, on the pitch over the course of a year, uh, I'm sure from your perspective, there's a lot of holes uh, in this particular award, not least the fact that, you know, the strongest ingredient, if you will, generally in the winning bid comes from team titles won, particularly uh, the Champions League and or any major international honours that year. Whereas, you know, if you're measuring footballing performance, that that can miss out some pretty key players each year, right? Yeah, completely. I think there is always this bias, especially in kind of domestic uh, Player of the Year awards as well, that's tending towards, uh, like you say, you know, team performance and team achievements, which, uh, yeah, it's, it is questionable whether that the player has such a, a big role in that team achievement such that they deserve that individual award. Um, and I think for, for certain players like like Jorginho, like Modric, um, it feels like there are probably one or two moments which stick in the memory for for the voters. Um, and that is where kind of a lot of the the reasoning for them getting the vote in the end comes from. Um, whereas, you know, they're, they're perhaps not consistently putting up amazing numbers or you know doing things in midfield which other players perhaps are doing on on lesser known or lesser um, successful teams so yeah I think it's always difficult with individual awards in such a team sport um, but I don't think really we'll ever have a purely objective purely numerical um, way of ranking them anyway at least not in the next 10 to, to 20 years. And of course, we should also say that in 2020, the Ballon d'Or was cancelled due to COVID and it's widely accepted that there would have been a winner not named Messi or Ronaldo that year. More on that later. Uh, let's introduce our four key players that we're going to discuss today and they span you know, the whole era, which is nice. We'll start in order of age from oldest to youngest with the magnificent Dutch wide man, Arjen Robben. He's the first one we're going to talk about, Michael. And for each of these players, I want to start with the sort of top line stuff. So if you were Arjen Robben's agent and you were pitching to an imaginary committee that needs convincing of his addition into this conversation, what would be the main selling points? Well, he won titles wherever he went. He went to PSV, he won the league in the first year. He went to Chelsea, won the league in the first year. Went to Real Madrid, he won the league in the first year. He went to Bayern Munich, he won the league in the first year. Not sure any of those sides had won the league the previous season. Um, so he, he constantly changed teams. He constantly made them better. Um, I also think he had incredible longevity that gets overlooked. Um, I know, of course, injuries hampered his career. So you look at the number of appearances and he's not pushing the, the numbers that Messi and Ronaldo were. But, I mean, he really transformed Chelsea when he turned up in, in 2004. Five. He, he was an absolutely brilliant player for, I suppose, half of that season again because of injuries. He actually got voted into the player of the into the uh, team of the year uh, at the end of the campaign, despite only starting fourteen games, <laughs> which shows how good he was. And I think he just he maintained that level, and I'd say probably went to a higher level actually by the time he 
he turned up at Bayern. I mean, he was relatively, he was an experienced player by the time he, he got to Bayern Munich and then he was there for 10 years. And his record at Bayern Munich, I mean, 99 goals in 201 games. Um, yeah, pretty much a goal every other game for someone who wasn't, um, you know, an out-and-out striker and wasn't even re- really regarded as a prolific scorer in the way that Messi and Ronaldo are. But that's an incredibly good record. Um, and he was also excellent at two World Cups. I mean, 2010, he came very close to winning the final for the Netherlands. And 2014, I think, is probably the second best player um, behind James Rodriguez. Um, was just brilliant in a, in a kind of almost a central counter-attacking role just behind Robin van Persie. So I can't get enough of Robin. I think he's a brilliant <laughs> player, one of the best players I've seen. And uh, yeah, of these four, he'd be the one, not necessarily the, the best of these four we're going to talk about, but I think he's the player who's been most hard done by because he was competing against players who have done ridiculous things with numbers that hadn't really been done before and might not be done um, afterwards. Um, and yeah, Robin was was not quite on that level, but was a brilliant world-class player for I'd say the about 15 years. Well, it's funny you say that because I was looking at his longevity and playing for Groningen in the Eredivisie is not considered to be the elite level of football, but I did note that he won Groningen's Player of the Year in the 2000-2001 season, playing in the top tier in Holland. He scored his last Champions League goal in November of 2018. So we are looking at an 18-year career uh, at the top tier of wherever he played, and and invariably that was at the very, very top level, of course, as you say, for 15 or so. Uh, Tom, we can't mention Ian Robben without talking about how he had in a sport where there are many ways to skin a cat, one very specific way to skin a cat, uh, and one of the most repeatable elite skills that we'll probably ever see in the game. Yeah, I, I think if we're going by top-line credentials, kind of that finish of, of cutting in on his left foot and trying to bend it into the far corner is... Um, I mean, very few players have a really um, characteristic goal which they kind of can repeatably score again and again and again maybe it's you know Messi has some similar patterns in his goals uh, perhaps Aguero and uh, and others but I just feel Robin is one of the mo- one of those that just sticks in the memory so much more just because and I remember reading an interview I can't remember who with but it was with a defender trying to trying to you know defend Robin one one against one and the issue was never you know where he's going to go it's it's telegraphing when he's going to cut inside and they said that was the impossible thing to know because there were really no tells. Um, <laughs> there were no kind of like clues as to when he was going to jump and just burst past you. So, yeah, so I many, think- so many feints, but you never knew which of the seven feints was going to end up with him actually going that way. Yeah, exactly. So I think, yeah, and for people who, I mean, there are a lot of listeners to this podcast who probably have come to football quite late um, at, or, you know, not really seen much of Robin. And yeah, he's definitely one to, to go and look at if you've never really seen much of him before because um, you'll see what I mean in terms of just even watching from the video and trying to predict which one he's going to go on. It's uh, it's it's tough to do even now. So um, yeah, I think... There's that, but there's also I feel Robin had a very distinct running style as well, which which sticks in my mind. Um, which again, some players kind of get criticised for for their gait at times. I remember Jordan yeah. Henderson had some famous detractors because of that. Um, but yeah, Robin was is a very kind of memorable player because of the way that he just moves the things that he does on the pitch. I mean, uh, Michael Tom, his his performances at Chelsea I think are worth dwelling on 
just slightly because he'd had some exceptional seasons in Holland for Groningen and then for PSV. He signed for Chelsea age 20. Uh, It was the 2004-2005 season. Mourinho uh, had just been appointed. I mean, his numbers were amazing, but I also feel, Michael, that in terms of the the era in which he was playing as a direct goal-scoring wide forward that was still sort of in development both within his own game because I, I believe he sometimes played on the left of a 4-3-3 but also in, in the Premier League in general that wasn't as much of a thing I'm um, looking at the assist leaders from that season uh, you've you know the wide players who were getting a lot of assists were Stuart Downing Reyes uh, Jonathan Greening you know for wide players and wide attackers in the Premier League it was a uh, it was still probably the previous era yeah, I wouldn't have guessed Jonathan Greening on that Sporkle quiz. That's a that's a great shout. Yeah, you're right. I mean, he played both sides, really. The the first choice wingers in that first season under Mourinho were him and Damien Duff, obviously both uh, naturally left-footed and, and left-sided. And he did develop his game. I mean, Chelsea was playing as part of a counter-attacking side under Mourinho. Real Madrid, I think, as always with Real Madrid, slightly more individual-based side. Bayern Munich, I think, was a mixture of counter-attack and possession in the first couple of seasons. But then when Guardiola came... Um, some people question whether Robin would be able to play in that kind of system because Guardiola hadn't used wingers really at uh, Barcelona. He used wide forwards. But Robin developed um, very nicely, changed his game. And at times, I remember they won was it 7-1 or 7-0 away at Roma. Um, and he was the system was all about getting him in space and one-on-one situations, I think, against Ashley Cole, actually. Could be wrong on that. I think it was against Ashley Cole who had a really difficult night against him. Um so, yeah, he, he did develop his game. And, um, you know, as Tom alludes to, I don't know why his kind of repeated classic type of goal is used as like a stick to beat him with. You know, it's always like, oh, how do defenders fall for it every time? I mean, people have never said that about Thierry Henry when Thierry Henry was doing roughly the similar thing in a bit more of a graceful way, probably closer to goal. I mean, he had a classic finish and people say, oh, wasn't that classic finish brilliant? But, I mean, unless you think every left back in the world is is really dumb and just doesn't know how to play against a player coming inside. Um, you've got to concede that, as Tom says, it was it was about his trickery, it was about his feints, it was about the fact that he could go down the outside um, and cross if needed um, that, that led to him scoring so many similar goals. I think if, as well, if we kind of go from a, an analytical point of view, now obviously we don't have too much data on, uh, on Robin's kind of career, at least in, in the public domain, but those positions at which you'd usually shoot from in the corners of the area, if you look at kind of expected goals and, and the, you know, a heat map, say, of, of the box and areas of likelihood of scoring, the corners of the box are actually some of the hardest places to score from because of the angle, because of the, the amount of the goal mouth you've got available to you. And you see that even with players now, which they might score. I mean, Nicola Pepe is one that's so fresh in my mind from, from the game of the Emirates, but he's one that always likes to cut inside and aim for that far corner. And invariably, the trajectory of that shot is nowhere near what you want to actually bend towards the goal. So for Robin to kind of hone that as a as a skill for something that's so difficult, um, I imagine he's one of these few players who you know has a specific spot and, and from a kind of data point of view would be far, far better than, than the average player. But then again, we're honing in so much on what makes him great without realising that, you know, he would have missed shots from that situation and, um, you know, he perhaps he would have been about on par and we're forgetting all of the misses. But, um, yeah, I do think, like Michael says, we shouldn't beat him with that stick because he was just actually so good from that situation. Tom, anything else from the Chelsea years that sticks in the mind? 
Yeah, I think another thing was maybe it's because I was about ten or eleven years old when he when he was playing for Chelsea. But it felt that he kind of brought diving to the Premier League. I remember a lot of the <laughs> debate was around Robin and around diving and and him being very theatrical at times. So there's that which I guess we we shouldn't really celebrate him for too much. Um, but uh, from a numbers point of view, I mean, um, I think that in his first year at Chelsea, he averaged just over one goal plus uh, an assist per 90. I think I've got it down here as 1.14 goals and assists per 90, which is, you know, that's in Messi territory, Ronaldo territory, really. Probably more so Messi because there's, there's assists in there. Um, and he did slow down after his first season. That was due to kind of availability issues. But I think overall, in his early 20s, to average kind of 0.66 goals and assists per 90 um, is really very good in, in the Premier League, which is probably... I don't know, this is unsubstantiated, but easier to score then than it is now and the quality of defending is a lot more system-based and organised and defenders are more physically fit and all this stuff. But um, yeah, those are really, really good numbers for a player who kind of helped define what modern wing play looks like in, in the modern game, I guess. Two years at Real Madrid between 2007 and 2009, where he's 23-24, were, I, I don't want to go as far as to say lost years, Michael, but uh, certainly in the context of his whole career, uh, two years that he wouldn't look back on with a huge amount of pride. What was the story of Robben at Real Madrid and, and his move to Bayern Munich just after two seasons there? Well, I think the move to Bayern Munich is the most interesting thing because, of course, he moved in the, in the year that they bought Ronaldo. Uh, Ball Cristiano Ronaldo. So, in light of this podcast, I mean, if they hadn't bought Cristiano Ronaldo, if Ronaldo had just stayed at Manchester United for his whole career, would Robin have been there for the years where Real became a, a real powerhouse? Being reunited with Mourinho would have been interesting because he didn't particularly get on with them at Chelsea. But yeah, that is a particular factor, I think, in this uh, in this conversation. You can probably say that the move to to Bayern helped him because that's where he played his best football in the end. But yeah, you're right. I don't think he particularly looks back on the Real time as, as particularly productive. Um, but he did win the title there. His second season was all right, but it was, um, yeah, there were a few injuries. And I don't think he, during that period, you wouldn't really have regarded him in this in this respect, although did have a couple of good moments at Euro uh, 2008. Um, but yeah, certainly Bayern was where he picked. That's it, isn't it? You know, he moves to Bayern age 24, 25-ish. Uh, he's just spent five seasons with Chelsea and Real Madrid um, and probably has tailed off a little in the eyes of many uh, at Real, who then signed Cristiano Ronaldo. He moves to Bayern. It wasn't a given, as you've suggested, that he was going to do what he did next. But the most unbelievable 10 years of his career. Remember, this is someone that had struggled a lot with injuries already at this point, still early on in his career. But his numbers, his performances at Bayern Munich are what really cement him in this conversation. Indeed, Robin! Brilliant! Just brilliant! But potentially terminal for Manchester United! Yeah, if you go back and you watch his debut for Bayern, it's absolutely incredible because him and Ribéry just combine for the two best counter-attacking goals you'll see. It's just like straight away they click. And it's like, well, okay, that's going to be the next 10 years of Bayern Munich. <laughs> right for you there. Okay, with Lewandowski and Müller later on. Um, but yeah, those two, I think, really defined it with their with their wing play. Like Tom says, this that really was the start of almost every team using inverted wingers, cutting in and shooting. And Ruby and Robin defined it better than anyone. Talk me through that spell, the, the most in, impressive stretch of Robben's career at Bayern Munich. Break it down for me. 
Well, he started by doing it really in the Champions League. He scored a couple of great winners uh, against Fiorentina, then Manchester United, to take them through in the second round and the quarterfinal of the Champions League. Although I say winners, I think they were both actually winning away goals, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I think Bayern lost both those two games 3-2, but went through in away goals. I could be wrong on that. Um, But yeah, I mean, he scored some spectacular goals. Generally playing on the counter-attack, I would say he was at his best. Um, and then, yeah, developed his game and, and played, I, I think, a little bit higher up the pitch under Guardiola, was getting the ball really um, in advanced wide positions. Although there were times as well where Guardiola tried to change the system and because the fullbacks were coming inside, he had Robin and Riri coming very deep to get the ball and almost at times filling in his wingbacks. I mean, he did he did play a lot of roles in the scope of just playing on the right. Um, and I think... Yeah, to go back to what I said earlier, he was brilliant at two World Cups. And in that World Cup final in 2010, he had two one-on-ones against Casillas. One was saved. And the other one, Tom mentions the diving. Actually, he was too honest. He actually stayed on his feet. Where I think if, he, if he'd gone down, maybe it would have been, not penalty, but it would have been a red card for a Spain defender. Maybe it was Poyle. Um, but I mean, that's, that's a one-on-one away from really, I think, being regarded as one of the most successful players of all time. He would have scored the winning goal in a World Cup final. He would have won European Cups and titles absolutely everywhere. Um, so I think, you know, it's about fine margins when it comes to how players are remembered. But uh, yeah, that was that was one absolutely massive uh, incident that I think gets forgotten because people didn't want the Netherlands to win the <laughs> World Cup final because of the way they played. But they probably had the better goal-scoring chances at 0-0. Mm. Well, he did score a, a winning goal in the Champions League final, didn't he, for Bayern against uh, Dortmund and the numbers that he put up over a, a span of some years uh, alongside Ribéry, it, it should be said, uh, quite astonishing. Uh, lastly, given that across a 15, 18-year career at the very highest level, spanning different footballing eras tactically, there's generally some uh, either tactical development within a player's role or physical development that dictates uh, a change in in their style or their role, some sort of adaptation of your game in order to stay at the highest level. Is Ian Robin the most egregious example of someone that, that didn't have that or didn't need that? Yeah, I think to a certain extent he had, he had a one thing that he was very good at and found a way to do that in, in different situations. But yeah, I think subtly he um, he did vary his game between uh, between clubs and adapted to, to different roles. Um, and yeah, I, I think his longevity, it's worth pointing out his, his last assist in professional football was this year <laughs> in, in the Eredivisie against uh, Emin, a 4-0 win for Groningen. He retired... Had a year out of the game, then went back to his his hometown club, uh, Groningen, and uh, only played six games um, and did have injury problems as always. But six months ago, he was playing at the highest level in in Holland and getting a couple of assists, which I think is, uh, yeah, probably went a bit under the radar. I do find it funny how, like, a lot of wingers in the modern game do have to move around because they lose their speed. And Robin had so many different types of injuries. Um, that it does beg the question, like, did the the fact that his body all over kind of didn't hold mean that the injuries weren't focused on a specific area of hamstrings or ankles or whatever, and it meant that he could keep his kind of top speed and his kind of ability to prolong those top speeds well into his 30s because he was just so injured elsewhere. It's just very peculiar that a player can can play well into their, their you know, kind of mid to late 30s in the same role at the same level. Um, only playing, you know, ten or fifteen games a year, 
Um, but yeah, I, I find that going back over the numbers just quite um, quite interesting. It's the the big issue, I think, aside from not winning the World Cup final when he had two opportunities to do so against Spain. But unfortunately, Robin never started more than 25 league games in a season outside of those first few years in Holland. And I'm sure that that, that has to be a factor here. You know, there are 38 league games in, in the Premier League and fewer in the Bundesliga, uh, of course. But to never start even more than 75% of your team's games in a season. I think that that certainly is his most obvious red flag, but 12 league titles in four countries, an absolutely astonishing career. He retired back in, in July and it's uh, yeah been a pleasure to talk about him on the pod. I think had Rob N been three years older, let's say, um, we might be talking about him differently still. Let's move on to number two, uh, Karim Benzema. Tom, why does Benzema deserve to be part of this conversation? I think probably like Robin, it's it's his consistency at the highest level of the game, uh, mainly at, at club level and, and um, European level, you know, club international level, um, that's kind of kept him around. And he's always kind of been in the shadow of of Ronaldo uh, at, at Real Madrid. And then when he's been the main man, they've not probably not been as, as good as they have in seasons past. But I think that as a player, he's probably the, complete bottom forward really in terms of he can score he can score a variety of goals he's got very good movement um, he's quite a, a kind of decent link pass as well at times and I think he retains the ball very well and is pretty good in one-on-one situations and I just think there are very few elements of his game which are, are kind of weaknesses um, and I mean if you look at the talent levels around him now and we'll get onto his 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 kind of form shortly this season but um you know, he's got Vinicius and a couple of others, but it's nowhere near as good as Real Madrid teams of, of yesteryear. And yet he's putting up really, really good numbers and, and playing really well. So, yeah, I think it's just that consistency of goal scoring um, and creating throughout Real Madrid mar- managers, throughout various qualities of squads around him. Um, and he's still relevant now at 33. So, yeah, I think uh, as a package, he's he's been pretty damn good. Just to add weight to the longevity argument his first 20 goal season Karim Benzema was in 2007-2008 that's a long time ago he's well on his way to another this season it seems Uh, eight seasons with 0.9 goals and assists per 90 or more five of them in fact over uh, one goal and assists per 90 Uh, and you know Michael the the main chunk of his career of course has been defined by Real Madrid and their success he's won four Champions Leagues with them more more than he has La Liga titles in fact um, but those Leon years are are exciting to watch back I've I've found in researching the, this pod from 2007 to 2009 particularly uh, he scores 37 goals in Liga in two seasons nine in the Champions League between the age of 19 and 21 and he looks a bit like the original Phenomeno Ronaldo rather than Cristiano Ronaldo in that he is incredibly mobile, incredibly skillful. He's throwing stepovers out left, right and centre. He's shooting with both feet and scoring magnificent goals and not really playing a, uh, a classic number nine style. And it's been therefore quite interesting to see, I guess, maybe much more so than Robin, how his game has developed both from that early incredible youthful talent uh, to what we've seen at Real Madrid for more than a decade now. 
Yeah, you're right. I think that's a decent comparison. And Leon were very exciting at that time, of course. I mean, won seven titles in a row. Benzema came into the side towards the end of that. But yeah, he's always considered himself more of a number 10 than a number nine, hasn't he? I think in keeping with a lot of um, a lot of the best strikers around in the last 10 years, they're not naturally out and out goal scorers. They want to be creators. They want to be involved. And the goal scoring comes a little bit later. Um he was a very exciting player. And I think to a certain extent, that real sense of excitement probably went out of his game a bit when he was at Real Madrid and having to play a little bit of you know, a functional role to bring out the best in others for, well, best part of a decade after he got there. That is, I guess, the, the Portuguese elephant in the room when we talk about his development as a player. Uh, always second fiddle, as you say. Uh, was he at his best post-Ronaldo or was he at his best alongside one of the greatest players to have ever played the game. I think he was much better after Ronaldo left. I mean, there's always a little bit of a, a boost for other players after Ronaldo leaves the club because there's there's usually at least one star player who's had to compromise the game. You know, Rooney, the first time we talked about Rooney as being a world-class player was probably the season after Ronaldo left Manchester United. And you look at Benzema's basic goal-scoring numbers. I mean, in nine years when Ronaldo was in the side, he scored more than 20 league goals only in two of those years. And he's done it three out of three seasons since Ronaldo's left. He's on nine goals in nine games so far this season. And also the last two seasons before Ronaldo left, he only scored 11 and five mm. goals in the league. I mean, it was there was no guarantee that Benzema would, would be regarded on this level. Um, at that time, I think Real Madrid probably considering replacements. Well, that adds weight to his inclusion in this conversation then, right? When he, you know, there was, it would... Had Ronaldo never left Real Madrid, it would always have yeah. been levelled at Benzema that he played alongside Ronaldo and that was the key reason for his, his success. But individually as a player, he has st- stood on his own two feet and how over the last few years. And again, it comes back to 2009 and Real Madrid's transfer dealings. He joined um, Real Madrid at the same time as Ronaldo, at the same time as Kaká, and at the same time as Xavi Alonso. So he was not, he was never the player that this side was based around. I'd say those, those three players were all given a bit more primacy. Obviously, Kakao was injured, didn't really work out for him. But, you know, when, when they had to shift things around to, to make Kakao feel comfortable, they did try to do that. So uh, it took a long time. And, and even the players that are not really in this conversation, but, I mean, Gareth Bale was really seen as the successor to Ronaldo as, as Rail's, you know, next big superstar. That didn't obviously work out. But Benzema was always having to to do some some dirty work, if mm. you like. And um, I think, by and large, did that very well. But I would say his most spectacular form has certainly come uh, in his 30s. Tom, uh, he's, he'll turn 34 uh, before the, the end of this year, but showing no signs of letting up in terms of his attacking output. I notice on FB Ref that his uh, pressures are very low. He's not putting a huge amount of pressure on the ball. Perhaps no surprise, but with it, um, arguably better than ever. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's he's putting up very, very good um, goal scoring and, and assisting numbers. I think Michael said earlier he's nine goals and seven assists so far this season, um, which is kind of a you know combination and, and per ninety is his best rate ever. Um, he looks like he's running a, a little bit hot. I think he's got nine goals and four xG uh, and seven assists from three point two xA. So whether that continues remains to be seen but so far he's probably on track for his uh, his fourth 20 plus goal season in a row which again for someone who's in their early 30s to, to mid 30s that's uh it's pretty pretty good mm, absolutely i mean he's just passed 200 la liga goals which is the most by a, a current 
active La Liga player, 10th overall all-time in terms of La Liga goals. Uh, it's one strange aberration that Michael mentioned in the 2017-18 season. He only scored three non-penalty goals in over 2,000 La Liga minutes, um, which is, uh, he just had that season off, really, in terms of goal scoring. Uh, Michael, you know, we talk about international performance, international honours a lot when we um, when we give an overview of a player's career. Arguably, uh, we weight that too much, but one of the big things for Benzema is, is having won so much at club level. He very pertinently did not win the World Cup in 2018 with France. And the full details of the reasons why they're currently being played out through the courts, which adds a well a very distasteful wrinkle to the Benzema discussion. Yeah, not sure how much we can talk about that, but Tom Williams is, is covering it very well for the Athletic on the site at the moment. Yeah, that, that's been the big asterisk. And of course, Giroud, um, you know, we talk about Benzema doing the birth, uh, dirty work for, for better players. Giroud, of course, has been the master of that. Won the World Cup up front for France. I think played six of the seven games and didn't manage a goal. But I think, you know, they look better with him in the side. Of course, Benzema didn't take very kindly to that. Famously called Giroud a go-kart while he was a Formula One car, which I quite like as an analogy, to be honest, as much as I do love Giroud. Um, so yeah, I suppose it was nice in the way that he won the he won the Nations League, won the Nations League, scoring a brilliant goal in the final. Um, what was that last last month or earlier this month? Last month, wasn't it? Um, so yeah, he's got his he's got one international honour, but yeah, you have to say he's missed out on you know a fantastic generation, the best French generation of talent I've seen, probably even better. You could argue than the, the side that won the World Cup and the Euros back to back in uh, at the turn of the century. Um, maybe if, if they'd had Benzema, they might have won Euro 2016 on home soil as well. Obviously got to the final, then lost 1-0 one, uh, to Portugal. So, mm-hmm. yeah, he has missed out on that. And I think when it comes to the voting for for the Ballon d'Or and that kind of thing, international tournaments always have a big say, don't they? That was the case with Modric. That was the case when Cannavaro won it. Um, it always does depend a lot on that. So he's been penalised in that respect, definitely. Next up, and... Eight months younger than Karim Benzema is the Polish striker, Robert Lewandowski. Uh, Tom, talk me through Lewandowski's top-line credentials for this discussion. Um, I think goals is probably a <laughs> key part of the discussion with Lewandowski. I mean, he's obviously broke Gerd Muller's scoring record last season uh, in the Bundesliga. Um, an absolutely ruthless finisher, someone who has scored over 20 goals multiple times a season for, for Bayern Munich and uh, put up similarly good numbers at uh, Borussia Dortmund as well. So, um, yeah, I think that if, you, if you're talking anything about Lewandowski, it's that if if Benzema is kind of the complete modern forward and someone who um, can you know drop deep and, uh, and link play there, I think Lewandowski is very much one of the most ruthless penalty box strikers we've seen perhaps ever um, and definitely in, in kind of the modern, modern era. So, um, yeah, for me, Lewandowski... Um, is all about goals and I think that's probably going to dominate our discussion uh, now. I'd like to add a little bit of colour to this because I probably hadn't given him enough credit in my own head for the aforementioned goals. So listen to this. In April 2005, uh, Lewandowski scores for Delta Warsaw in the fourth tier of Polish football. Uh, In the 2006-2007 season, he's the Polish third division's top goalscorer uh, with 15 goals. He's playing for Zenit Pruszkow at this time. They win promotion. The next season, still with Zenit Pruszkow, he is the top scorer in the Polish second tier with 21 goals. Then he joins Legia Warsaw 
0809, the third top scorer in the Polish top flight, and then 0910, the top scorer. Moves to Dortmund, and in his first season in 2010-11, he's mostly used off the bench. They're easing him in. He gets eight goals in 17.790s per FP ref. That's his worst ever goal-scoring performance. And then... From that point, he's first choice for Dortmund. He finishes third top scorer in the Bundesliga, then second, then wins the Golden Boot. Moves to Bayern, comes second, then first, then second, then first, 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 first. So <laughs> 15 full seasons Lewandowski has played. He's been top scorer in the league in which he plays nine times. He's come second three times and third twice. Only one season where he wasn't on the podium and that was his first year at Dortmund when he was coming off the bench. Obviously, this season, uh, he's well on his way, him and him and Haaland having a, a good battle. It's absolutely astonishing stuff, Michael. It is, and he's been helped by being the opposite to Robin in the, in the sense that he's, he's barely got an injury. And when you look at how many games he's played, obviously there's only 34 games in the Bundesliga. Until last season, he hadn't missed more than four games. Last season, he only played 29 games. That was the lowest he's played in a decade in the Bundesliga. About 11 years in the Bundesliga. Um, and that was his top goal scoring season, 41 goals. So, uh, yeah, he's a remarkable player. The goals is one thing. I think his all-round game uh, for a while got underappreciated as well. He was, I mean, it's worth remembering that they, uh, Bayern brought him in a little bit controversially from obviously Dortmund, their, their biggest rivals. And he was replacing Mandzukic at the time. And I love Mandzukic, he's a brilliant player. But the thing that separated them, I think, was, was Lewandowski's ability to come towards play, get balls to feet, link play, create for others. He's, he's more than just a goal scorer. And, and, you know, you look at that, the way that he plays for, for Poland, or the way he sometimes plays for Poland over the years, he's almost been a second striker, number 10. Um, behind Milik or, or Piontek um, at different times. So he's, yeah, a brilliant all-round player. I think with Messi and Ronaldo being more mobile, a bit deeper, a bit more creative, a bit speedier, that kind of forward has almost gone a little bit out of fashion in terms of us talking about the best players. But, I mean, there's no reason really why he can't be compared to Van Basten or Batistuta or Ronaldo or real the best number nines that we've seen in the last few decades because his his record is just incredible. Is there a player development arc here, Michael, in terms of his role? It feels to me like he's been so complete as a nine for so long. Maybe that wasn't always the case and he had to de develop that part of his game. Or maybe, as is the case for some players, as they age, he's doing less and less as he gets older. Is any of that fair or true? Yeah, I, I, I'd say he's been relatively consistent in his style and his output and what he contributes to over time. I think like most strikers, probably it took a while before he was a top-class link-up player. And I think like most strikers now, he's in his 30s. Um, he's 33 now, like Benzema. Um, he's not that useful in terms of pressing compared to probably how he was in the Guardiola years, for example. But uh, yeah, I'd say of these players, I'd say he was maybe the most consistent over the course of his career. Interesting, looking at um, some data from Smart Scout, uh, which I'll tweet these out after the the pods out so people can see them, but we can see kind of how he stylistically has, has changed over time. And kind of like Michael said, I mean, looking at some of his numbers for his, his volume of shots um, and his kind of number of receptions in the area, his, his shooting volumes remain fairly consistent. And that's mainly to do with um, how many shots he has on kind of a per-touch basis. So it's not just... In 90 minutes, he always has seven shots, but if he, say, he only has 30 touches, 
he'll shoot on 25% of them. And if he has 50 touches, he'll st still shoot with a similar volume of, um, of those touches. So we see that he consistently is a very high volume shooter, regardless of, of how much of the ball he's seeing. Um, his actual, his kind of link passing and his tendency to link plays actually dropped a fair amount um, since 17-18. Kind of every season it's dropped off slightly and slightly. And, and this year under Nagelsmann, it seems that he's just been not much um, kind of pressing from the front. And if anything, probably the least uh, of uh, of any part of his recent buying career. Um, he's passing upfield a little bit more, um, which to me says that he is... He's dropping deeper, not just to link play, but to kind of send through balls to, to Sané and Nabry and the other kind of flying wingers that Bayern have. Um, and he's receiving in the area a bit less as well. But um, yeah, really interesting to see that. I think the biggest thing for me is that he's remained so consistent and so good as a goal scorer throughout various managers with differing styles at Bayern. Um, of course, the level of, of player quality in Bayern's squad is usually consistently the highest in the Bundesliga, but he's been able to kind of adapt to different systems very well. And I don't mm. think all strikers are able to do that. We'll finish with two issues, Michael, uh, when it comes to this sort of conversation. And uh, through no fault of his own, the, the first one, it feels like some people mark him down because he plays for Bayern Munich and they are so dominant uh, in a league where they are able to be at least one of two dominant teams, if not the only one at times. Is it fair to mark him down in terms of this conversation because of that? I think it is a bit, yeah. Um, especially the fact that the moment when Dortmund stopped challenging really was when Bayern decided they wanted to buy him. So his, he has, by virtue of being brilliant, uh, been probably the player who has meant the isn't a title fight. You know, Bayern are going to win the league for the 10th season in a row. Lewandowski hasn't been there for all of them. I think he's been there for eight of them now. Um, but yeah, I, I think it is fair. I think there's such a a massive inequality within the Bundesliga. And, and if you play for Bayern, you're going to run up incredible stats. So um, as incredible as I think he is, I do wonder whether one day, if there are financial reforms to football in the future, we'll slightly look back at the numbers of this era the goal scoring numbers that some players are getting in this era and think, yeah, that they, they are slightly asterisked. Again, through no fault of his own, uh, plays his international football for Poland, hasn't been involved in the latter stages of major tournaments. Michael, how much does that hurt someone to, to not play for a top 10 nation regularly reaching those parts of the major tournaments? Yeah, I think it does. Again, you know, he's, he's probably overcome it by now. And, and as we mentioned, if there'd been a Ballon d'Or last year, there's a good chance he would have won it. But um, yeah, I put him in a similar category to Ibrahimovic here. Probably Sweden and Poland have been roughly the same level of talent apart from those two over the last 10, 15 years. Um, and they just don't have that much chance of progressing to the semi-finals and the finals and playing in the biggest games in international football. So yeah, I agree that has held him back a little bit. No fault of his own, of course. Neymar! Okay, last but not least, we're talking about Neymar, uh, the youngest in this group. Still not 30, in theory. Plenty of years ahead of him. Uh, Michael, in, in terms of putting him amongst this group, what's the elevator pitch? Well, about a year ago, may have been, uh, may, might have been in one of the lockdowns because it was quite a boring thing to be doing. But I went through all the Ballon d'Or voting over the last like, 20, 30 years and compiled a kind of League table. So, you know, if you if you get came first, you got 20 points. If you came second, you got 19 points, etc. And added up all the scores. And in third place, by a very long way, 
ahead of everyone else was Neymar, um, behind obviously Messi and Ronaldo. So we almost talk about Neymar sometimes as if he hasn't quite fulfilled his potential, as if he's you know a wonderful talent who's maybe made a couple of wrong moves or hasn't been consistent. But actually, you look at his level of performance year on year, and he's been very, very good. He's come third in the Ballon d'Or twice. So again, take away those two, and he would have won two Ballon d'Ors, which puts him on a level of the best players of all time, some of the best players of all time. Um, and he's just a great, I think, really good all-round forward. Not as prolific, maybe, as as Ronaldo and, and Messi, but I think the, t- the things he can do in deep positions and tight spots and in terms of creativity, in terms of dribbling... I think he's been a, a wonderful player for the vast majority of his career. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that has come to define him of, of late, which is that dropping deep and and really slowing the game down. I think he's something of a of a point guard at times with PSG. Maybe less so now. Now Messi's there, but particularly remember the um, the Champions League final against Bayern, where he was doing doing that a lot and kind of you know looking to to spring pass him behind or just take it on himself to beat players and drive towards goal and it's not necessarily the best way of playing for the team but it's just that's just the way that that Neymar plays and it certainly has has defined him but um, I think another thing which he can be defined by obviously his passing is extremely creative but I think he's one of these that for the number of goals he has and the numbers that he puts up he's actually not an overly clinical finisher Um, now we spoke on this podcast before about why goals versus XG isn't the best um, measure of kind of finishing skill and uh, doesn't really take into account you know the goalkeepers that are in there um, and there's a lot of kind of noise anyway to do with goals and XG and you need a big sample of shots to be sure that someone is or isn't a good finisher but since 17-18 in, in both the Champions League and Liga, um Neymar's scored 41 non-penalty goals from 50 XG so he's about nine goals under um, now it could be that you know the next two years he he has a big upward swing and he, he remains about on par um, but I think that that's one thing that uh, would have helped him a bit more if he could be a bit more ruthless and potentially you know take a, a bit quicker in executing his shots not inviting that extra bit of pressure or the opposition closing the angle down or something like that but um, overall I think he's one of the most fun players to watch certainly hmm. Certainly, and that was maybe never more the case, Michael, than when he was the wonder kid at Santos that we had to watch a lot of YouTube highlights of because we weren't watching many full 90s of. uh, And there's something about the Brazilian wonder kid um, with the hype and fulfilling it that is just one of the most exciting things in in football. I mean, he spent four full seasons at Santos and from the from the very moment he started, it was considered that this was someone who was pretty special. It, that feels like one or two seasons more than you might expect a Brazilian wonder kid to be playing uh, over in Brazil before moving over to, to Europe. What do you remember about Neymar at that time, about how he was being discussed at that time? Uh, and I suppose moving over to Barcelona, his sort of initial impact there with Messi, obviously casting a, a pretty large shadow. Yeah, I just remember so much hype and so much excitement about him. And I remember some calls for him actually to be in the World Cup 2010 squad when he'd only played, I think, one full season for Santos, which at the time, I mean, I wasn't watching him week in, week out. But you do think back and think maybe actually that would have made sense. It's not unusual for players to go straight into an international squad. I mean, look at someone like Marcus Rashford had only played, I think, three or four months for Manchester United when he was in the... I thought you were going to say Theo Walcott there. No, I did think about Walcott, but I didn't think that was a great example. But, uh, I mean, Rashford, I think, made his debut in February and was in the squad in in the summer. So it's not unusual. And, and Bra- uh, Brazil weren't overloaded on attacking talent at that point, really. I mean, it wasn't a great generation of Brazilian players. 
But yeah, he did stay longer than than you might have expected. I mean, the highlight was 2011. He won the Copa Libertadores with Santos um, and then went off to play in the Club World Cup in the game between Santos against Barcelona. There was real hyped up as, wow, this could be one game where Barcelona really get a uh, a good game. And I think they won it 4-0 and Neymar was convinced, I think, that he had to go and join those players. Um I mean, the funny thing was, and I probably shouldn't admit this because it makes me look like a fool, but that Santos side, I was more excited about Ganso. Remember Ganso, brilliant <laughs> number 10, who was, he just looked so South American and was so wonderfully talented, a brilliant dribbler, you know, could play a, could play a pass really well. I mean, he, he had a few years um, in Europe with Sevilla, but injury problems and barely started. I think a lot of people, I'm sure yourself included, were were really desperate for a, a Juan Roman Riquelme replacement at this time. Yeah, he was he was more my kind of play. He was a kind of number ten, a great passer rather than a dribbler. Although he could dribble as well. But I remember watching. I think they might have made their Brazil debut together. And Ganso was the one that really caught my eye. But only played eight times for Brazil. Career didn't really work out. But uh, yeah, Neymar's. Um, Neymar's consistency really is, is probably quite underrated, I think, uh, mm. over the last decade. I mean, his 2014-15 season, his second season at Barcelona, it's pretty astonishing. I mean, they win the the well, they win the Champions League. He scores 10 goals in that Champions League campaign. They win La Liga as well, and he scores 22 goals uh, in that campaign. I mean, that is age 22 having you know, seemingly fulfilling the hype, it, it it leaves the next few years. It's kind of a tough act to follow, isn't it, Michael? It obviously leaves Barcelona, moves to PSG, and that's going to have a huge impact on how he is considered on his legacy uh, in general. What's the sort of objective look back at his time at Barcelona? Uh, and then I suppose his time at PSG will, all, will always be defined on whether they win a Champions League or not. Yeah, Barcelona he had a slow first season. I thought it was a funny time to move, actually, because it was a year before the World Cup on home soil. I thought that was a funny time to move to Europe when he had to adjust to a new system um, at Barcelona. Um, yeah, slow first season. I think second and third seasons were, were pretty good, particularly the second one. I mean, people will always remember his, his um, you know, him and Messi and Suarez as one of the best front threes we've seen. Um the last season, I think, tailed off and maybe he, he knew that he was going to be off. But um, I'd probably still look back and say that was his peak. Probably 2015 was his peak. I think he was a really, really good player at that point. And um, the move, I mean, I don't blame him in a way because I think there was an exciting opportunity to be part of a one of the biggest stars in Europe and have it completely based around you um, rather than being in Messi's shadow. We've talked about the players that have been in the shadows of Ronaldo, I think to a certain extent that's the case for Messi as well. Less so because I think Messi's a, a more selfless player. He's more likely to give you a assist than Ronaldo. But it was a factor. The irony, of course, is that Neymar ended up trying to convince Messi to join him in Paris. And, mm. and now I think he's probably had to change his game slightly to accommodate Messi. Um, it hasn't quite gone to plan. But the year before last, they got to the, the Champions League final against Bayern Munich. And um, I think they were the better side in that game. I think Mbappe misses a shot or has a, save, a shot saved by Neuer. If that goes in and, and Neymar really has led them to Champions League victory, we're probably talking about him in different terms. Fine margins. Uh, Tom, is there any way that we can track how he has changed as a player, whether he's had to adapt what he does on the pitch to, to fit the needs of his team or just his development himself? 
Yeah, again, looking at the kind of smart scout numbers, um, it's actually quite noisy looking at uh, Neymar over time, particularly when well, I mean, we only really have his, his final year at Barcelona than all of the time at, at PSG since. And we see some some weird outliers like 2018-19 at, at PSG where uh, he does a lot more kind of link passing midfield that isn't really um, moving play upfield. Uh, his dribbling and carrying drops off a cliff. Um, way below average compared to to both his levels and also average for for what a winger would be. Um, and also we see in the last couple of seasons his kind of defensive work rate in terms of tackles, fouls, clearances and blocks. Um, and that's kind of adjusted for, for the amount of possession that PSG have are really, really high for a winger. So um, I think that we saw that um, in the game against Man City recently. I thought that he was particularly... Um, busy in terms of his defensive work rate and tracking his man back and actually getting in the other box instead of just focusing upfield. So uh, yeah, there's some some interesting changes where uh, he's done a, a few things to change his style, but I don't know how much of that is kind of system-based because Neymar doesn't really feel like a player who, who you kind of, I don't know, plays within a system. Kind of he is the system mm. and all the players around him kind of orbit around what, what he does. So yeah. Uh, yeah, but there have definitely been been some changes with him. Uh, Michael, I mean, it, it feels like of the four, he has probably been most impacted by the, the looming shadow of Messi and Ronaldo, both in a footballing sense, the period at Barcelona playing with Leo Messi, who at that point was untouchable. Maybe in comparison to Ronaldo as well, more about off-field stuff and question marks about things like mentality which have followed Neymar where Ronaldo of course is the poster boy for mentality uh, I don't necessarily know if that's easy to define but I think we all recognize that 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 topic yeah it probably has been a factor um, I don't think he's overwhelmingly unprofessional certainly not by the standards of certain Brazilian superstars over the years that have come to European football but compared to the dedication of Ronaldo I think is um yeah, maybe he comes off bad badly from that comparison. And he did do an interview recently where he said that, you know, the, the World Cup next year will probably be his last one, which it seems quite early in a way, doesn't it? It seems like mm. he should have one left, but then he's he's 29, he'll be 30 by that time. Will he still be a peak player by the time he's 34 for the next World Cup? Maybe not. Maybe he's just being realistic. But yeah, it does feel like his, his career's just been slightly shorter. So maybe his peak years have been slightly shorter. Like I say, he is 29. He can prove us wrong by going on for longer. But it kind of feels like he might have a um, an earlier, uh, sorry, a shorter shelf life than Messi and Ronaldo. It is interesting with Neymar, especially with international football, because he, I think it's him, uh, Romelu Lukaku, and uh, I'm just looking now, I think it's uh, the UAE's, Ali Mabkut, who are all kind of in the running to, uh, if they kind of carry on scoring at the same trajectory, probably the closest we'll get to 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 potentially breaking Ronaldo's new international goal scoring record. So that's, uh, I mean, I think Neymar's been pretty prolific for for Brazil. So to call, you know, to tap out with the next World Cup in mind, obviously it means that there's another four years before the World Cup after that. Maybe he won't retire straight away but that's definitely something that he could set his sights on achieving and I think that he could probably get to the the 100 goal club um, if he just remains fit and and you know keep playing in the next two three years at least. I think one thing worth pointing out as well is that Neymar has had international success because he won the Olympics in, in 2016 and I know that the Olympics is not on the level of the World Cup or the Euros or the Copa America in this case but it's always been such a big deal to Brazil that they'd never won it. You know, they lost the final in 2012. And of course, they won it on home soil as well. So 
yeah, it's the Olympics. But to win the Olympics in Brazil, to score in the final and to score the winning penalty at the Maracanã is a pretty big thing in Brazil that we probably in Europe don't think about enough when we consider Neymar. When we spoke about Iron Robin, I suggested that had he been three years older, he might have had a an easier time of it building a, a legacy on the world stage. And uh, I think probably it ties it off quite nicely to suggest that if Neymar had been three years younger, uh, then I'm absolutely sure that that would be the case for him as well. So uh, that's our big four. Iron Robin, Karim Benzema, Robert Lewandowski, and Neymar, one of the things that I found very interesting, Michael, is that only one of these players, Ian Robin, played in the Premier League and only for a, a few seasons, not for the majority of his career. Yeah, any thoughts on why that might be and why we haven't mentioned particularly any Premier League players from this era? Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, only Robin with that um, unforgettable stint at, at Chelsea. But um, yeah, Premier League, I mean, over the years, Premier League sides haven't really signed real superstars it's been a bit of a thing I mean there's very few that have come really at their peak I mean Shevchenko I would say obviously he didn't work out um yeah it's just been one of those things I think over the last decade it's really been Real Madrid and Barcelona that have been considered the peak clubs and I suppose PSG now Lewandowski is slightly different situation because he's staying in Germany going to Bayern who didn't don't tend to play the real massive fees and of course Lewandowski was on a free um, so yeah, that is a little bit of an anomaly, but maybe things will change. You know, having watched and wrote about the Classico at the weekend, I think it's obvious Real Madrid and Barcelona are not on that level anymore. I mean, that mm. was quite a poor game with not that many superstars on show. I'd say managers that are not regarded as amongst the elite anymore. So yeah, maybe that's changed. You know, maybe we're talking about you know talking about Salah at the start of the the podcast. He was often linked with the move to Real Madrid and Barcelona over the last couple of years and hasn't always played it down as strongly as Liverpool fans might hope. But would he make that move now? I don't know whether he would. I think Liverpool's a better place to be. He's, he's at home there. He's in a better team there. He's got a great manager. So, um, yeah, whether that will link to the next superstar playing in the Premier League, who knows? But, yeah, as we say, this is the first time the Premier League has had the best player in the world, obviously, since... Ronaldo in, in 2008. So, um, yeah, maybe things are changing. Well, maybe he'll win the Ballon d'Or next year. I know Messi's pretty strong favourite for it, uh, for the award that will be given out in the next few months. But next season, or next year rather, at, at this juncture, it feels likely that Salah will be favourite for it and, and pretty good for it. Since 1970, Michael, only Cristiano Ronaldo and Michael Owen have won the Ballon d'Or while playing in England. That's 40 years any theories? No, I, I think that is probably unusual. Um, I suppose the the late seventies, early eighties was when the, the you know the first division as it was then was providing the European Cup winners. I'd say probably during the eighties there wasn't that much English football wasn't as prominent. Certainly the start of the nineteen nineties as well when they were banned from Europe. Probably the one who's slightly unfortunate to miss out on it was Thierry Henry, who I don't think ever deserved it for a particular year. But I think when you take a four or five year period was probably the best player in, 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 in that period. I think when you look at the, the combined the Ballon d'Or voting from those four or five years, he comes out on top, but didn't quite have his outright gear. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's an interesting pattern. We run out of time to go in depth on the, the list of players that we've got as sort of highly commended. Uh, I'll just mention them and, and potentially they could be a separate podcast 
in and of itself, it could be, why do these players not become part of our conversation? But probably only when we really run out of ideas. Um, I think we have to mention Xavi and Iniesta. I mean, they're pretty tough to separate as a duo, but Xavi came third in the Ballon d'Or behind these two, uh, Messi and Ronaldo, three years in a row. Iniesta was on the podium twice as well. Uh, you've got Antoine Griezmann, who has been on the podium twice in his career as well, which somewhat surprised me. 2018 to 2020, Virgil van Dijk certainly was very highly commended here. Uh, Luis Suarez as well for what he's done over the last 10, 11 seasons. Kevin De Bruyne featured in our, our conversation as well, at the very least. But uh, no time to dig into those this week. But uh, I think a conversation that I have found really interesting, um, certainly I think uh, a few careers that merited a, a little more in-depth discussion than perhaps they otherwise get. So thank you both for, for running with it. Uh, I've really enjoyed it and I hope it's been good to listen to as well. We certainly would love to hear from you. Uh, clearly in the list of names that I've just read out as highly commended, there are going to be players who deserve a, a more in-depth conversation. Which of those do you think should have been part of our uh, main group and which other players maybe not mentioned at all uh, have been hard done by? It'd be great to hear from you uh, both on, on Twitter, perhaps you can get in touch with us or in the comments on the podcast page on The Athletic site. Do sign up to The Athletic uh, if you'd like to do so. You can get a discount a third off an annual subscription at theathletic.com forward slash tactics. Uh, then you can read all of Michael and Tom's work as well as their talented colleagues otherwise make sure you subscribe to this podcast feed so that you catch us as soon as we drop every week on the athletic football tactics podcast thanks for listening the athletic